Mark chapter 1, verse 9, and I will read down to verse 13. Now it happened that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. The title of the message this morning is The Savior Commissioned. The Savior Commissioned. And I will argue that what we're looking at here in these five verses is the commissioning of the Lord Jesus Christ for his work. And the events here mark the beginning of his ministry and even the authorization that God gave him for his work. Uh, great leaders of any sort must first be tested and then are usually publicly commissioned for the work. Uh, that's evident in our government officials. Uh, it's seen in the church, or it ought to be, that there's a period of testing, and then there's a public recognition uh, of a public servant before he officially engages on his work. And there's a number of benefits to that. One is that the people he leads recognize that, uh, that this man is in fact qualified for the work, and for the man himself. It gives him the the assurance that he's in the right place, that he has the authority to fulfill the work before him. And so when we come to the commissioning of the Savior, we're, we're looking at the man, the person that God has appointed for the most difficult task in all of human history, in, in rescuing the world from its sin. And there's never been a more difficult task uh, even impossible, an impossible task for any man to accomplish. And so it makes perfect sense that there is a remarkable commission that God the Father gives to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the main thought for us this morning. The commission of the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage shows us four reasons why he alone can save sinners. What makes him so able and so fit for the work of salvation? Four reasons. The first we see in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Now it happened that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The first thing we look for in any public servant is that there's an, there's an actual sincere desire to help or to address the crisis at hand. Do we want to vote for a president? Well, the first question we should ask is, does he care about our country? Uh, or is he in it for other reasons? The same thing in the church or any community leader. Does the man have any sincere concern and love for the people that he is coming to serve, or in this case, to save? And so the problem is sin uh, the Savior must therefore have a true compassion for sinners. And so just imagine the sight, if you would, with me. 
John the Baptist, we went over his ministry last week, he was where? Uh, he, he was in the wilderness of Judea, near the Jordan River. At that time, the religious center was not in the Jordan River, on the banks of the Jordan River, out in the wilderness. Uh, the religious center was in Jerusalem. And so we find John the Baptist on the outskirts of the religious elites in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. To who? Who were the crowds that attended John's ministry? Uh, if, if we want to know what it means that Jesus was baptized here by John, we, we have to have this clear picture of the scene. What would we have seen there? Well, Matthew gives us some additional insight. He says that the groups that largely attended John's ministry were what he called, quote, the tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus said these words in Matthew, Truly I say to you, the Pharisees, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John, the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And so he tells us there that the people that were largely attendant on John's ministry were the scum of society. And the Pharisees used this against Jesus because the same dynamic existed in his ministry. He spent most of his time eating with sinners, not condoning their sin, but no, spending time with them for the purpose of calling them to repentance. They called Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this is a shocking beginning to the Messiah's ministry, isn't it? You would expect the, the king of kings, when he comes into this world, when he descends from heaven uh, and chooses a place to begin his ministry, maybe he should begin his ministry in Jerusalem, in the temple, or in a great synagogue somewhere else. Or maybe he should be in Rome, the most powerful empire of the world at that time, schmoozing with the, the Caesars and the senators of that great empire. But no, the beginning of the Messiah's ministry was in the wilderness amongst a group of tax collectors, meaning extortioners, and prostitutes, fornicators, immoral people, who were listening with interest to John the Baptist's call to repentance. And many of them did respond to his ministry. They did respond in repentance, and they did submit themselves to baptism as a symbol and a sign that they were repentant. But the, what makes this so shocking is that Jesus has no sin. If we've read our Bibles for any amount of time, we know that, that Jesus himself was without sin. Uh, in order to offer up himself as a sacrifice for our sin, he couldn't have any sin of his own. He had to be a lamb that was spotless and blameless. He had to offer up himself without blemish to God. Well, why then was he baptized? Mark, it's characteristic of Mark in his gospel that he, he leaves a lot of things unexplained. And it's not that he thinks we don't need to understand what's happening, but it's likely he's writing after Matthew, and he's writing to Roman Christians. Remember that? There's a lot of evidence that Mark is being written originally to Roman Christians who have heard Peter preaching for some time. And so the people that originally read Mark, they were not 
hearing all of this for the very first time. Uh, this was written to, to ground them in the faith. And so Mark is content to not explain why Jesus was baptized, but Matthew explains a little bit. Jesus submitted to baptism, not because he needed to repent of any sin, of course, but it was a public identification with the people he had come to save. Do you see that? That he is not doing this out of his own repentance, but he's doing this to identify with this group of people. In other words, he is being baptized, and by doing that, he is, he is telling everyone there, the world, that this is his mission. He's come to this group of people, this immoral group of people in the wilderness, mourning over their own sins, struck with their own depravity. He has come to save this group of people. He is not coming to save the great people in Rome or in Jerusalem. He's coming to save the reprobates and the scum and the outcasts of society that know their sin and acknowledge it. And so we can say, first of all, that we see in Christ's commission that he is the friend of sinners. That's the first point, the friend of sinners in verse 9. But we also see not only his willingness to save, but also his ability to save in verse 10. Jesus can save, first of all, he's the friend of sinners, but second of all, he can save because he possesses the Spirit in a remarkable and unique way. Look at verse 10. It says, Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Jesus, we confess, to be both true God and true man. And we have to hold on to both of those truths and be content not to totally understand how that can coexist in one person. But the scripture clearly teaches that. But it's important that we don't turn the deity of Christ into, into this picture of him where he is, he is like Superman, where he has no weaknesses, where he has no need to pray, uh, where he has no capacity to experience our, our weaknesses and our, our struggles, although without sin. In his incarnation, the second person of the Trinity took on a weak and frail human nature, and he submitted himself entirely in obedience to the Father. When the Son of God became a man and was born, he did not empty himself of his power or of his glory, but what he did do is he willingly laid aside his privileges to exercise his divine power in the flesh for his own benefits. And so the Lord Jesus Christ prior to this moment uh, was not empowered for his public work in the way that he would be after this moment. Uh, the Holy Spirit is coming upon him to prepare him for his work, to empower him for the work. It says immediately the heavens were opened. Uh, just a uh, an interesting point here is that Mark is unique, and he uses this word immediately oh, about 40 times in his gospel. And that's a, a unique feature of Mark. If you're, if you're trying to figure out, oh, what exactly, what does Mark contribute to the gospel accounts? 
seems like just a, a short version of like an abridged Matthew. Well, that is not what Mark is, and that's a lot of people have thought that, which is why it's been neglected for a lot of church history. But Mark is wanting to uh, throw us into the public ministry of Christ right away. And he wants to show us in rapid succession these evidences of Christ's power. And so that's why he uses this word immediately. This is the first time he uses it. And he uses it to draw our attention to the opening of heaven. Scripture teaches that there is a place called heaven where God dwells. Uh, It is called the throne of of God. And God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. And so while God has no body, he has no physical substance that we can see, he does have a throne. Uh, there is a throne room of the universe and that place is called heaven. Uh, that place is where God's glory shines in a way that it does not shine in other places. And it's so brilliant there The glory of God is so brilliant there that the beings in heaven have to shield their faces to the divine glory. And it is this throne room that is briefly descended, comes down to earth to attend to the commissioning of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says there is an opening. Mark uses a very strong verb meaning to be torn open. Uh, Jesus is seeing this sight, but we don't know if everyone saw it. Um, We know based on the Gospel of John that at least John the Baptist saw part of what was happening here. He saw the Spirit descending on Christ. But at the very least, Jesus himself saw this vision of the heavens opening, and not just opening, but something coming through from the throne room to earth. And that was the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, descending on the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Christ actually means the anointed one. Uh, It comes from a word named creo, uh, from which we get the word Christ, and that just means to anoint with oil. Uh, Christ is the anointed one, and he is not just symbolically anointed, but he's anointed in a real sense by the Holy Spirit for his work. He's anointed, being anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill his work, which consists of, first of all, preaching the gospel. So he was not a preacher prior to this moment. He began preaching uh, after the Spirit anointed him to heal those who were oppressed by the devil, is what the scripture says. The Holy Spirit empowered him to perform his miracles and finally to offer himself without blemish to God. There is a an interesting verse that actually says that the Holy Spirit enabled him to offer himself up as a sacrifice. Uh, He would need supreme courage to confront the terror of the cross. Uh, The greatest courage that the world has ever seen was that act where Christ offered himself up in our place and confronted the terror and the horror of suffering for sin. So we see that Jesus is not only willing to save, he's also able to save and equipped to save by being anointed by the Holy Spirit. But third of all, notice in verse 11 that he is able to save because he is the beloved son of God. Uh, In verse 11 it says, a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son 
in you I am well pleased. It's interesting. Many people are confused about Jesus' identity. Have you noticed that? Maybe if you've gone to a, a liberal university and you had some encounters with liberal theology or maybe just in history class, people saying, well, there was a man named Jesus and we don't know exactly who he was and, you know, we found these documents and uh, the Gospels are pieced together by, uh, by so many people. And there's all sorts of theories, especially around Christmas. You might have seen some magazines, right? The quest for the real Jesus. And uh, it's interesting. They choose not to focus. Most of those articles choose not to focus on Scripture, but um, false Gospels, right? The Gospel of Thomas and, and all sorts of things like that. Just trying to pry into things that, that um, are really developed from myths and really neglecting God's clear word. Uh, many people wish that God would speak to them. You know, I'm, I'm seriously considering becoming a Christian, but I'm just not quite sure. Uh, I'm not quite sure about Jesus. Uh, I, I still have an affinity for maybe another religion or other philosophy, and I'm not totally ready to replace all of that with the person of Jesus Christ. Well, we often fail to recognize that God has spoken from heaven. I mean, here it is. If you're confused about who Jesus is, it's just right here in black and white. What, is, what does God say? God thundered from the heavens on multiple occasions to tell the world exactly who his son was, who Jesus was. He said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And it's a remarkable statement by itself. Uh, there's a it's a remarkable truth just expressed here by itself, but it's, it's actually an allusion to at least two Old Testament passages. And I think it is worth our time to turn to those briefly. So turn just for a moment to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2, and just keep your finger in Mark 1. When God says, you are my son, uh, any biblically literate person at that time would have immediately connected it with Psalm 2. Uh, psalm 2 was a well-known messianic psalm, messianic text, among the Jews of that time. So let's just read that in context so we know what, what God the Father is alluding to there. In ver Psalm 2, look at verse 7. This is the Messiah speaking. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So this psalm, by quoting this psalm, God the Father is, is telling the world this is the Messiah. Uh, this is the Davidic king. This is the king of kings and lord of lords. This is the, the coming king of, of the coming kingdom of God. Uh, he will rule over all nations. He will, metaphorically speaking, break them with a rod of iron, meaning he will exercise complete authority over the earth. That is who Jesus of Nazareth is. He is the, the king of kings. And so this is a clear quotation from that, that psalm. But now look also to, to another psalm. Um, sorry, 
Turn to Isaiah 42, verse 1, to see the, the rest of the quote. So, my son, we get that from Psalm 2, verse 7, but in Isaiah 42, if you would turn with, with me there, just a few books to the right, uh, Isaiah has a number of texts that, that speak of a, a servant figure that many call the suffering servant. And so there's a number of songs, servant songs in Isaiah, that speak of this figure. And it, it provides an interesting complement to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the Messiah is presented as this glorious king who's just coming immediately to establish his kingdom. But the picture is a bit more complicated than that. This, this figure will also, in some senses, be a servant. And so look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here, God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will bring forth justice in truth. So the, the servant, it's, all, it's obviously the Messiah being referred to here. You see that in verse 3, that he'll bring forth justice. And in verse 4, the, the coastlands will wait for his law. So it's talking about the same figure, the same Messiah, but notice he's also called the servant, not, not the Messiah, not the king, the servant, uh, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased, the one anointed by the Spirit. And we see that uh, alluded to in God's declaration, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So in you I am well pleased is quoting Isaiah 42 verse 1. And if we would look through all these texts in Isaiah, we would see that this servant uh, will actually suffer prior to his glory. That there is actually a need for an atonement. So if the Messiah came, if he just came suddenly without suffering, he would be the only one in the kingdom. There'd be no citizens in the kingdom. And so in order to purchase a citizenship uh, for the kingdom of God, he has to come and atone for sin and the climax of that in Isaiah is, many of you know, Isaiah 53, that great chapter. And so let's turn back to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we, we've seen that God the Father is drawing our attention to those two texts in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. But there's one final feature of his statement that's worth noticing. He also says, my beloved son, not just my son, uh, he adds this. So Psalm 2 just said, you are my son, but now he says, you are my beloved son. Uh, this word beloved uh, is a very interesting and important word. And uh, just to flip to one other passage that I think is very important in Mark chapter 12, we see a uh, the parable of the vine growers. And I only turn here because it helps us understand what this word means. It doesn't just mean you know, the son I love. I have, you know, I have three sons. I love them all. Uh, but the word beloved son in the Jewish mind, it had a special reference to an only son, to a unique and only son. And because of 
that uniqueness, there was a special love that the father had for that child. And so in this parable in Mark 12, uh, Jesus is telling this parable about a man who rented out a vineyard and leased it to vine growers. Now harvest has come. He's come to collect his share of the crops, and that was expected. But the vine growers react with hostility, and they beat his slaves, his servants, and they kill others. And so in verse 6, the man says, or it says, he had one more, a beloved son. So one more, only one, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son, uh, alluding to the God the Father sending the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, into the world. And so that, that is a strong hint, if not a proof, that God is talking about not just a, a king that is pleasing to him in, like David. I mean, God called David a man after his own heart, but he didn't call him his beloved son. He didn't use that language. Uh, when God is calling Jesus his beloved son, he is speaking about his timeless identity as God's only son from before time. Uh, the son of God, that is a real title. It's not just a, a messianic title or a title that, that Jesus has. There is, in a real sense, a sonship relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And John goes so far as to say that Jesus is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father in John chapter 1. And so the person here being presented to the world is not just the king. He's not just a, a willing, humble servant, but this is actually God, the Son in human flesh, who is identifying with sinners and coming to the brink of his ministry to atone for their sins. So what, what does that mean to us? Well, when, when we are stricken with conviction for our sin, and if we're believers, that happens maybe more regularly than we would want, uh, but that's uh, an evidence of the Spirit working in us, that we are confronted with our own sin, and we can become convinced that we have passed some line, uh, a point of no return, where there is no forgiveness beyond that line. And really, the only comfort we have in those times is that uh, we need to focus on who it was that saved us. Uh, the Savior is himself the judge. The judge is the Savior in Christianity. Because Jesus has a unique and special relationship to the Father, being God of himself together with the Father, he is able to forgive all sin. So his sacrifice is able to cover any sin, even the darkest sin, because of his deity. And that's why one man can atone for the sins of thousands, maybe even millions of people, because the Lord Jesus Christ has an infinite value in his person. But he can also give all blessings as God's son. Uh, a man, when a man, a great man, wants to help someone else or raise them up, to some level, he can't raise them any higher than he himself is. He can't bring that anyone else into a circle that he himself is not part of. 
And so the reason that we can become adopted into God's family is because Jesus is not only the Savior, but the Son of God. So Jesus is willing to save. He is able to save, both on account of his empowerment by the Spirit, but also because of his timeless relationship to God the Father. But finally, Jesus can save because he is the conqueror of sin himself. We see that in verse 12 and 13. Mark records just a very brief account of Christ's temptation, passing over all the specific temptations that Matthew and Luke give us. And so we'll try to focus on what Mark wants us to focus on here. That verse says, these verses say, Immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Another quite surprising thing to happen at Christ's commission. Uh, He's baptized with sinners in the Jordan River in the wilderness by a rogue preacher. Uh, The heavens open, and God the Holy Spirit and God the Father publicly affirm his ministry. But perhaps the declaration about Christ won't won't play out in reality. Uh, Perhaps he won't live up to his title or what God has said about him. Uh, God is one who tests his people. God always tests his people. He'll test all of us. He's tested all of his people throughout time, and now he will test his own son to prove to the angels, to the demons, to Satan, to the church, to the world, that his son really is well-pleasing to him and is himself the conqueror of sin, the sinless lamb of God. Uh, But God will test him. God is this kind of God. He said, In the Old Testament, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the inmost being, even to give to each man according to his ways. Uh, But notice that testing, it's not the same thing as tempting. So when we say that God is testing us and he tested Christ, it doesn't mean he tempted or he tempts. Satan tempts. Uh, Tempting is when you solicit or entice someone to do evil maliciously where you maliciously lure someone to commit evil. But testing is when you bring someone to a situation where the secret intentions and inclinations of the heart are brought out. And the, the analogy of the, the hot cup of water in the tea bag, sometimes used as a picture of this, is that the tea has its own flavor, but when you put that in the hot water, the, nat- the essential character of the tea leaves is brought out and diffused into the water. And that's how it is with us. I mean, our culture would tell us that, no, you are forced or you have been molded into who you are by the sins of your family or your environment or your, your culture, your religious beliefs. But the Bible teaches that our heart is, in a sense, independent of our circumstances, that we have a moral bent in our heart that is brought out in adversity. Uh, Even just think of Adam in paradise. Uh, There were no 
external pressures on Adam. He had no, I mean, he didn't live in 21st century America where he was inundated with, with filth at every turn, it seems. He lived in paradise with God, with a, a perfect wife even. And still he fell and he sinned. Sin came from within. But that prohibition to not eat from that one tree, that just brought out the, the sin that eventually welled up in his heart from within. God tested Abraham. Uh, God had told Abraham that he would bless the whole world through a son of this man. Uh, that we know, if we, as we read Genesis, that was Isaac. He was the child of promise. And so Abraham rejoiced when Isaac was born, that there was a son of promise that God would use to bless the world. But God tested him, and he told him to take his beloved and only son and offer him up as a human sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Imagine that, being tested to do that. Uh, Abraham passed that test. But the, the situation that is being alluded to here uh, is not Adam, it's not Abraham, but it's Israel's time in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is saying to his people, following at the end of their 40 years wandering in the wilderness, he's saying, he said to them, the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you. So God is now explaining why he purposely led his people into the wilderness, into adversity, into a land with no water, no food, no nothing. He said, I led you there for 40 years to humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments of God or not. And so based on that text, we can safely say that the true man is only seen in the wilderness. The true man, the real you, is not seen when everything's going well. Uh, your prosperity is propping you up. You're being propped up by uh, your financial boons or your good health or your, you name it. But it's only when God has stripped you of all your comforts, stripped you of all your companions, taken away from you all of the things you most love about this world, that your real heart is revealed. And so trials reveal the inner character. Consider how God tested his son. He drove him into the Judean wilderness. You can actually, this actually still exists. You can see on uh, Google Earth that if you look at Israel, you can see between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, there is this big white patch. And that is a total barren wilderness still to this day. Uh, it's that way because of a an effect of the mountains. So Israel is very mountainous in the middle, not huge mountains, but in, they're big enough that they shield that wilderness, the wilderness from the winds that come off, off the Mediterranean. And so there's only a few millimeters of rain that this region gets. It's a rugged, de rugged desert terrain between Jerusalem and the Jordan River. And so Jesus, he's at the Jordan River, on the far east side of Israel. So now he's being driven by the Spirit west into this country. 
And so he's here 40 days. Mark doesn't mention his fast, uh, but Matthew and, and Luke both tell us that Jesus ate no food during this time. And if we, we also take that in hand with the first temptation he met with, right, to turn stones into bread, uh, that was the first temptation that Satan presented him with, we can, we can assume that God had commanded this fast, that the Spirit not only drove him into the wilderness, but he wanted his son to be in severe physical weakness. Uh, his body would have been screaming after 40 days of fasting. I mean, I'm always surprised when I get sick how quickly you just nosedive spiritually. Uh, it happens to all of us where we get sick and we're, we're you know, laid out in bed for a couple days or a couple weeks or maybe after a surgery and we can't pray like we normally can. We can't make it to church. Uh, we're not with our friends as much. We're just kind of sitting there with our own thoughts and aching. A very difficult trial for, for any believer. Uh, but Jesus was in this condition, in the wilderness, no friends, aching due to se- severe hunger. Third, he was with the wild beasts. Mark's the only one that mentions that, that there were wild beasts with Jesus. Why, why would he mention that? Uh, well, wild beasts, if you, if you would research this area, there are quite a few wild beasts here. And until relatively recently, there were actually lions and leopards that prowled about in this wilderness, and they would have been very hungry um, due to the, the lack of, of rainfall there. There's also poisonous vipers. So just imagine that, the Son of God out in the wilderness, no food, no water, no friends, uh, but there are vipers and leopards prowling around as he is spending night after night in this land. After 40 days, Satan himself attacks him. The, the fact of the matter is that we would fall to many temptations. God keeps us and protects us from many temptations in this life that we could not withstand. There are just some things that, that if you were to meet with today, you would fall to. Satan is far more intelligent than you. There is far more indwelling sin in you than you probably realize. But God mercifully protects his people from the fiercest temptations that Satan has. But it was not so with Christ. And Christ experienced temptation at its very height and pinnacle. Uh, he experienced the, the most severe forms of testing and temptation far more than you have ever experienced at a time of great spiritual, well, at least humanly speaking, weakness. Uh, he was weak in his humanity. The tempter uh, is the person called Satan. His name literally means the adversary. And we know he's the adversary of God and his people. There is a literal being, there's a real being called Satan that the Bible teaches us. Many of us know that. Uh, but he's not a comic book character. He's a real fallen angel uh, who we we, we are suspicious that he may even be the most powerful 
and intelligent creature that God has ever made. So imagine that. The Lord Jesus Christ coming face to face with the most powerful and intelligent creature and malicious creature in this world. Mark, uh, he doesn't tell us how, how it unfolded. Do you see that? He, he doesn't explain, well, there, and then Jesus said to him, such and such a thing, get away from me, depart from me, Satan. And there's this neat ending to the temptation account. Mark just says he was being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and angels were ministering to him. And so we are not told uh, about the outcome, but as we continue through Mark, we will see that this is the backdrop for the ministry of Jesus. That it's not just a, a new teacher in Israel. No, there's this cosmic struggle happening between the Son of God and the forces of Satan. And Jesus is presented as the conquering king. And the demons, as we'll see, will fall down shrieking in terror when they see him. But his victory does mean something for us. It means that he is able to save us from our sin because he is himself sinless. We take this for granted that Jesus is sinless, but the fact is one flash, one sinful thought would have rendered his ministry and his sacrifice void. It would have nullified everything that he had come to do. Just imagine that, trying not to sin for one hour. I doubt we, anyone here has ever done that. Uh, what, we think about things all the time that are sinful. And it, as we st- learn more about sin, it's often shocking to us. I, I knew I had sin, but I didn't know I was constantly sinning in all sorts of ways. But Jesus is completely victorious over sin in himself and is therefore able to save, but also in a, in a, in a very touching way, he's able to sympathize with us, that he knows what it's like to have an aching body. Uh, he knows what it's like to be presented with all of this world's idols laid out there right before you. Uh, so eager, so easy for us to grab at those. And so his victory over sin means he is qualified to save. So we see in his commission, and we've seen, uh, just to summarize what we have seen so far this morning, uh, we've seen that he's qualified to save because he is the friend of sinners. He's empowered by the Spirit. He is the eternal Son of God and can restore us to God. And he is also the conqueror of sin himself. Uh, when we, we just think about this man, uh, the Son of God, and following him, we have to make sure we're not casual about, about him. Uh, we are, our culture is so casual about who we follow. And even as you've talked with friends and family over the, the Christmas season, you may have even talked to some people and told them, oh yeah, I'm going to church again and studying my Bible, and they kind of say, oh yeah, that's great, I'm spiritual too, and I kind of dabble in all sorts of things, as if we had all these options and they're all equal. And we can just have our own blend. And yet Jesus is good, uh, but he's only a part of my smorgasbord of philosophers that I, that I listen to. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Christ is completely separate from all other religious figures. 
uh, from all other modern figures as well. Uh, Every so-called philosopher, uh, every so-called prophet, every so-called life coach or teacher, they will one day rot in the ground. Uh, They are all sinners. There is only one person who's alive, who's been raised from the dead, on account of his sinless life, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about what teaching makes us feel good. Who cares how we feel if our soul is in eternal danger, right? Who cares if I like some teacher and he makes me feel good about myself, but, but my eternal soul is in jeopardy, and my greatest problem of sin is not being addressed by the teachers I listen to. And so we can't choose our teachers or our religions, or our philosophies, based on how we feel. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart will lead you down the path of destruction every time, if that's your basis for making decisions. Uh, But this passage has clearly shown us that Jesus Christ, and him alone, is the Savior of sinners. Uh, He's willing to save, and he's able to save, and as we'll see in the rest of Mark, Uh, He accomplished that great work with stunning consistency and power. And so let's let's thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have such a person to go to and to lean on as our solid rock. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can look outside of ourselves, completely outside of ourselves, for our salvation that there is this man who is also God, the Son in human flesh that has taken our sin upon himself and suffered the agony of the cross for us. Uh, We pray that you would be merciful to us as you said you would be, Uh, not because of our great ability to pray, uh, not because of how much we have given back to you, not because of how much we have served you, but only because of Christ, of his perfection and his sinlessness and his spotless sacrifice that he offered up for us. We pray that we may listen to him in a way that we listen to no one else in this world. Help us to listen to the shepherd of our souls and to guard ourselves uh, from deceivers, from men and women who would seek to trick us and to lead us astray from the the truth that is in Jesus Christ. We pray now that you would bless us as we go from here and speak to one another and encourage one another and go to our work this week. Help us to, to face our own tests and the temptations that we'll meet in this world. Uh, please empower us to overcome temptation, not perfectly in this life, but in, in a real sense, help us to be victorious and to make progress against uh, indwelling sin in our, in our lives. And we pray this confidently because we know that we are praying in the name of your Son, who is sitting even now at your right hand. We pray in his name. Amen.